Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, Episode 12, the one about supermarkets, Facebook Campus and Pixar's Toy Story. Let's get on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. As always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify the world of digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio podcast. I give you Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. And what a pleasure it is to join you again for the week of Reviews, Rant and Raves. My co-host is a man here on the mission to keep marketing simple. You're the voice of the Marketing and Finance podcast and the host of the Roger Rock video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Pascal, thank you so much. It's so good to be back with you again. And here we are with episode number 12. And I think that we should head straight into the first section, which of course is in the news. And we begin with Facebook introducing limits to the number of adverts a business page can run at any one time. But if you like advertising, don't you worry. The lowest limit is 250 adverts at the same time. TikTok is still facing pressure to sell its American operations by the 12th of November. Undeterred, the platform has increased its marketing in the US with help of VaynerMedia, the agency headed by Gary Vaynerchuk. Well, well, in its Premier League campaign, Budweiser is launching its first ever alcohol-free drink called Budweiser Zero, joining the likes of Heineken 0.0 and Athletic Brewing. Domino's, as in the pizza, is creating 6,000 new roles ahead of the crucial Christmas trading period. The pizza company is hiring 5,000 new employees as well as 1,000 placements under the government's kickstart scheme to help young people get jobs after COVID-19. And Vodafone is planning to paint London red. Listen to this, Roger. When a branded bus approaches a scheduled stop, Digital roadside panels will turn red, displaying Vodafone advertising. This is to be done across screens around 200 meters radius. That sounds a bit scary, actually. (laughs) Spotify is adding to its podcast executive arsenal. The company has tapped John Chi to serve in a newly created role, Global Head of Podcast Business Affairs. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Chi arrives at Spotify from Paramount, where she formerly served as EVP of Business Affairs. Wow, well, listen to this. YouTube has confirmed they have been developing a TikTok competitor, no less, called YouTube Shorts. A beta version was launched across India recently. And finally, Apple is now rolling out an updated version of its web browser called Safari 14. It has a new privacy tool which will let you investigate which websites have tracked you in the past. So some good stuff there, Pascal, this week. Very good news. Can I just quickly then jump into the Spotify? Yeah. Literally headhunting someone from Paramount. Paramount obviously being a movie production and distribution company, if I'm not mistaken. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Again, I suppose it, it, it just backs up the fact that 
you know, every, everybody says that marketing people are more like media companies these days, don't they? And, and you know, we, we had the aforementioned Gary Vaynerchuk and his company is called VaynerMedia. It's not called Vayner Marketing Company, Mar- Vayner Marketing Agency. It's called VaynerMedia. So I think the whole media marketing thing is becoming a little bit blurred in agency land at the moment. I think so. Now, I need to ask you whether you think Domino's knows something that we do not. Are they expecting <laughs> a big increase in people eating pizzas over Christmas? Well, I mean, even a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, you know, with COVID-19 and the uncertainty as to whether there's going to be a second wave and all of that, will will there even be a Christmas this year? Um, you know, two weeks ago, I thought things were actually going well. Now, we're, all, we're almost talking about closing down the country again um, and, and limiting Christmas. So it may well be the fact that people are stuck in, indoors and dominoes are just jumping on the, uh, the opportunity that presents itself to feed people who aren't allowed to leave their houses that often. No, I think that's a very, very fair comment. Now, I must confess, Roger, I am a bit of a creature of habits when it comes to digital. So I've been using the same web browser, it would seem, forever. I have to confess that Safari 14 with this privacy tool, uh, I'm quite interested about that. I'm definitely interested in the websites that track me, I have to say. Um, It's it's funny, again, I I use Safari on my Apple products, so on my iPad and on my iPhone. I use Google Chrome on my desktop. And if Google doesn't do what the Safari 14 is going to do. So, yeah, it's it's another opportunity to try out something new, I think. And, and, And let's go back to that Vodafone bus thing. It's almost, I mean, let, let, let's face it, we, the aforementioned Christmas, I assume that London is going to be sprouting Christmas decorations pretty soon, if, it, if, not all, if not already, you know, the lights down Oxford Street and all of that sort of thing. And, and now we've got this, this, this Vodafone, quite interesting idea. So they've got a branded bus, and it's almost like a great big pinball table, isn't it? When the, when the bus or the ball gets to a certain part, all these lights will go up as it approaches. Now, on the one hand, it's actually quite innovative. On the other hand, I can think it, it's going to be something that could be quite annoying. <clears throat> you know, imagine you're stood, just minding your own business on Oxford Street, and because there's this Vodafone bus approaching, you could be stood next to something that all of a sudden lights up bright red, and you think, what on earth is going on? So, as, as always, marketers tread that very fine line between engaging and enraging, don't they? And I'll be interesting to see what side of the fence this Vodafone thing falls on. It reminds me a little of, uh, you know, the aspiration, for example, from shopping centres and the likes to be able to target you as you approach their venues. So mm. I don't think it kind of worked on the RFID stuff with mobile phones because I think mm. you needed permission. But this idea of, you know, if you walk near a venue that has a product that you've shown interest through your search behavior or your social media activities, then you would get a ping of a, maybe a voucher or whatever. So I think there's always been this attempt to use geography and proximity as a way to to target you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably a fair trial to use Christmas, you know, and this kind of semi-Christmas decoration entertainment to see how that would work. But I think you're right, with repetition could come a bit of, uh, you know, people just getting a little either completely 
ignoring it, they don't see it anymore, or just annoyed with it. You're absolutely right. We've got to be careful that we don't annoy people. And it's that mantra that I've lived by for a long time, engage, don't enrage. And with that, Pascal, do you think it's time to move on to the content spotlights? Oh, yes. In the content spotlight section of the show, Pascal and I surprise each other with a piece of content that we've discovered during the week. Now, it could be an article in a magazine, online or offline. It could be a podcast, video. It could be anything. But it's got to stimulate our interest and our marketing curiosity. So, Pascal, tell me, what have you got for me this week? So for you, Roger, this week, I've got something which is like half an announcement and half an analysis, a mm-hmm. written piece of content. The author is Andrew Hutchinson, who works for Social Media Today. So one of the reasons, actually, I chose this um, article, Roger, is to find a way through the medium of this podcast to say thank you to Andrew for many, many years of content creation and news alerts to keep me and many of my colleagues informed by the wonders of social media. So Andrew Hutchinson at Social Media Today, thank you for all the amazing work but this article as i've said half announcement half analysis has the title of facebook launches facebook campus to facilitate connections among amongst college students so as you can see it's not quite a title it's more the description of what's coming but as you've heard a moment ago a new product yet again from facebook called facebook campus and what is interesting about the article it goes into analyzing the uh you know, the product and what it's for and so on, but it makes the case to this idea of are we seeing the platform going back to its roots? You remember that uh, a few decades ago, um, Zuckerberg, uh, I had to kind of think about his name there for a moment. How could I forget <laughs> Zuckerberg um, came up with something called FaceMash, which wasn't a particularly kind platform. It was meant to allow you to score people on their physical appearance. No, not very good things, but then he matured it to the Facebook as documented in the movie The Social Network, which we commented upon last week, and then we know that it became Facebook. So the article is asking, are they going back to their roots where it all began, you know, within a college university campus? So as the name would indicate and the title, Facebook campus is to allow you to access a private network, which is only for that very college campus that you belong to. And you'd be able to use the Facebook campus pretty much as, you know, use Facebook, all the features and the groups and the events and whatever are there. But it's very much a closed network, Roger. You know, you, nobody else that is not from the campus, I'm sure there'll be some data matching, is allowed to uh, use it. And at the heart of it, the argument is that, you know, the first year particularly when you go to college, university, you may remember this fondly, it was a bit tough. You know, you don't know uh, where to go. You don't have friends necessarily if you've been traveling. You're also moving from kind of uh, teenage to young adulthood. There's also things going on. So this is meant to be also a support network for study, for um, organizing some kind of virtual concert, but also for advice on all matters of studying and life and so on. The analysis However, can uh, kind of borrows some elements of that comparison with going to its roots, but actually asking the question: Is it not simply a tactic for Facebook to try and retain a younger audience that they are losing year after year? The analysis would suggest that the average age of uh, Facebook users is getting older. 
younger people don't want to use Facebook because it's for older people, put it this way, and also because the platform has been around for a very, very long time. It actually requires work to run your account compared to other platforms such as TikTok, even Messenger or WhatsApp. So uh, is it a, a technique or tactic to retain a younger audience that is leaving, or is it simply responding to a need for smaller and more private networks, which is essentially the way the world is going? Yeah, Pascal, I think you're absolutely right. There's definitely two things going on here. I would agree with you. It's, you know, we, we know that younger people are, are disillusioned with Facebook or whether were they ever illusioned with it in the first place. <laughs> you know, they've already gone to TikTok and, and that's probably why all these other platforms are launching TikTok clones, uh, as we've already said. Uh, whether this will be enough uh, I mean, it's a possibility, isn't it? You know, a lot of people going to university and college, as you say, away from home from the first time. Maybe, maybe that crutch is something that will give them a bit of support. But is Facebook the answer, or, or will they be looking for that support and that network from the aforementioned TikTok or or, or the other platforms? I guess the, I guess the smaller community is interesting. I've I've read a lot of negative stuff about Facebook recently, as you have. Um, in in fact, yesterday I was reading an article about some new gizmo that they're about to launch. It's like these uh, Facebook glasses. You know, do you remember the old Google glasses and the and the the Snapchat glasses? Well, we've got Facebook glasses. And my just a geeky bit, but my original reaction when I saw these things is that everybody's going to look like Joe ninety. Um, but what everybody was saying about these glasses is that oh no, it's just another opportunity for Facebook to intrude upon our world and to suck data out of us. And I'm not buying these glasses. I, and, 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 I th and, I, and I think that you're right. I think there's two things going on here. I think one, they're trying to target the younger generation again, but also they're, they're trying to find ways of either trying to make up for the fact that they've breached our data um, privacy in the past or at least they're trying to cover up the fact that they've done that. So I do think that those two things are going on, but I don't think people are going to let Facebook off the hook that easily. No, not at all, particularly when, you know, there's always something uh, in the news. I mean, you know, I was talking to somebody about, uh, you know, reputation management and so on. I said, you know, Facebook, there's not a year or even a month that goes by without something happening. Mm -hmm. And and there are other brands where you barely hear about them. You know, it's really fascinating. Uh, and I think on one hand, you could say that Facebook is victim of its own success. They've been painfully slow in uh, acting on you know things that were really quite important, such as privacy, safety, and so on and so forth. Um, but I do know that in two, two years ago, when they, no, last year, sorry, when they had the conference, they did suggest that they could sense that people wanted to be part of a much smaller social network or social group. And we're looking at ways to do that. And I wonder whether Facebook campus is almost a prototype for doing things maybe at a city level only, you know, mm. or, um, you know, occupation level only. Because I think we've all kind of gone, you know, into this uh, in the early days of social media, you know, you, you chase the numbers and then you wake up from that slumming kind of go that's silly i don't need that many connections to be able to you know uh, have a successful career or you know su successful social life so i wonder whether yeah the this idea of breaking the global network into much more meaningful uh, chunks yeah it's, it's almost like going way i think one of the precursors to facebook was friends reunited wasn't oh goodness it? yes <laughs> and of course that was just trying to trace people that you went to school with and, and that was 
a small, very small number of people. And and you're absolutely right. I sometimes look at my Facebook, you know, every day on Facebook when it tells you whose birthday it is, there's frequently I think, well, who on earth is that? <laughs> you know, and, but there are friends that were friends on Facebook. And I, I probably met them at a conference possibly or or there was some tenuous connection with another connection and, and all of a sudden you've got several thousand friends on Facebook. And, and of course, I don't know the vast majority of these people. So it'd be interesting to see whether that smaller focus works. So to begin with, you know, they're going to roll it out to 30 colleges in the US, and then mm -hmm. I'm sure within the next six to 12 months, we'll hear more about it. But let's move on then to your finding this week, Roger. Okay, this is... Pascal, I've been really quite interested recently to see what businesses are doing as a result of COVID. Um, now, again, I do, you know, we've always... We've heard the word pivot misused when it comes to marketing people and having to pivot from an offline offering to an online offering but quite a quite a thing a few of the things that have caught my eye recently have been traditional industries and how they've been affected by covid so i'm thinking things like airlines you know and of course the travel industry has been utterly dev devastated by covid and, and and you do sit there and look at british airways and easyjet in this country and lufthansa and air france in in in, in europe and just wonder how these massive massive organizations will ever return to normal in, in, in any way, shape or form. But what really caught my eye today was a, was an article in Marketing Week about Morrison's. Now, Morrison's is, is definitely not the biggest supermarket chain in the United Kingdom. It's definitely behind Asda and behind Tesco. But I've always had a, quite a soft spot for Morrison's. They, they used to have a fabulous sort of cheesy slogan a few, maybe about a decade again, and it was Morrison's, Morrison's, Morrison's to shop at Morrison's, but they sang it in the Morrison's, Morrison's, Morrison's to so <laughs> shop at Morrison, Morrison's. And it was a bit of a tongue t twister, but it was a bit cheesy and it was a bit, a bit of a melodic jingle. Uh, but they've always done quite interesting and innovative things. I mean, a few years ago, we had the flagship Morrison's store down in Edinburgh, and they had this thing called Market Street. And they, they effectively turned the vegetable and fruit department into almost into this uh, replica of an, of, a, of an outdoor market. And they had, you know, they had dry ice to, to keep the vegetables cold and, and to present the fruit. And it, it was really quite nice. And they had people, you know, there to talk. And they had exotic fruits and stuff that you've probably never seen before from the tropics, star fruits and, uh, and all of that sort of thing. And I, I always think that, that Morrisons are quite in, innovative along those lines. And this article in Marketing Week is saying what Morrisons are doing to effectively reshape their business as a result of COVID. And some of the things that they're doing, we, we've, we've seen and talked about before on Two Geeks in the Marketing Podcast. For example, they're teaming up with Deliveroo to deliver their shopping to, to their customers. So, Pascal, have you heard of HelloFresh? I have not. Well, HelloFresh is a mail order company, and they're effectively an online supermarket, but they they prepackage meals. The the not they're, they're not pre-cooked. They just pre prepackage the ingredients for meals, and and you get recipe cards and you get instructions on how to cook these meals. So a, a HelloFresh box will include, say, chicken, vegetables, um, spices, and, and accoutrements to make 
a full meal. And a lot of people buy these HelloFresh boxes almost like on a mail-order basis. And these things come once a month or once every week or once every two weeks, depending upon how much of a subscription you take out. And what Morrisons are doing, according to this article, is starting to move a little bit away from just your standard going online and buying your shopping in bulk, like people have been doing from Asda and Tesco and Morrison so far, but pushing people into this more tailored boxes of specific recipes and boxes of specific food. And and the reason this caught my attention, and, and, and it's sort of, it's a theme that keeps coming back to this podcast. And, you know, we, one of the news items earlier on was the, the clone of TikTok that uh, is being launched. And we've seen that all the way through companies obviously see somebody else do something. In this case, Morrisons have seen HelloFresh doing something a little bit different around grocery. And they're now saying, as a result of COVID, more and more people are buying online. So we're going to shift our model slightly so that it's more about these pre-packaged meals and these pre-packaged groups of, of ingredients, which is the HelloFresh model. And I guess the article just had me thinking again, how long is an original idea original before everybody else gets onto the bandwagon and effectively replicates it, possibly improves upon it a little bit, but not enough to make it stand out as the original one did? So I think HelloFresh was the first of the companies to do this. And there's quite a few others now that do these prepackaged sets of ingredients. But now the big supermarkets are getting in on the game you know, it, and it'll become standardised and presumably that might push the prices down, It once again, it commoditizes what was originally quite an innovative and different idea. And it's a constant challenge we face as marketeers to make ourselves stand out from the competition. And it just seems to me that even though they're putting this forward as a, as a reaction to COVID, what they're really doing is, is saying, We've spotted somebody else who's doing something a little bit interesting, maybe a little bit better than us. We'll get in there and, and just leapfrog them a little bit, and presumably then HelloFresh will do something to leapfrog them. And before you know it, we've commoditized it, and it's not fun, it's not interesting and not new anymore. And presumably somebody else will come up with something new and innovative. But sometimes I think it's a shame that people do this. And in the same way as, well, let's launch a TikTok clone like, um, like Instagram did, you know, Think of some new ideas. Don't copy everybody else, Pascal. I have to um, join you in, in that way of thinking, you know, because even as, as a customer, you know, I get excited by novelty mm. and and also this idea of, well, I know what Morrison stands for and I know, you know, what kind of service they can provide me. And this is, you know, what they do very well. And you've got also specialists to do things very different, like HelloFresh. And I think sometimes bigger organization, for sure, you know, they, they have the resource, they have obviously the budget and the time to uh, copy and emulate someone else's kind of efforts. But where I think they sometimes get it wrong is that they don't necessarily then have the, the culture and the enthusiasm and the passion that goes with it. So you're still going to have a Morrison's-like uh, version of HelloFresh, but they're not going to have the kind of energy and, and the kind of con connection they have with their customers that this organization would have had, I would imagine, because, uh, again, the HelloFresh, I'd imagine, would be much, much smaller. For me, it kind of smacks a bit of spoilers as well, you know, kind of mm. spoiling the, the market where you know you don't have to do everything all of the time mm. you know my views around 
you know, what Facebook can do sometimes, you know, with their reels, with Instagram, um, YouTube, doing YouTube shorts, you know, to copy TikTok and so on. Uh, and you kind of go, I mean, literally, you know, are TikTok making people so nervous that they have to copy them for fear of losing, losing their, their audience? Um, what I would say to the likes of Facebook, YouTube, or Morrisons, why don't you start by improving your services first before copying someone else's idea? But that would be obviously um, very unkind <laughs> and very blunt. But, you know, there are things that can be vastly improved by all those big brands before they, they kind of uh, utilize some of their time, budget, and resources I into something else. Uh, and I think I I'd like to suggest to you that I, I get a sense that consumers in general welcome diversity. They welcome um, Don Volte, and they do want to support smaller independent ventures. You know, they may still do the regular shops to the big brands, but they want to also know that some of their money is helping somebody else. And it would be very interesting to see, for example, whether customers from HelloFresh kind of go, I'm sorry, Morrisons, you didn't do it, you know, when you could have done it. You're not a bit late to the party. We stick with HelloFresh anyway. So is it mostly about those who don't know about the existence of uh, HelloFresh and many others? I think you've nailed it there. And, and of course, Morrisons saying we're doing something online along the lines of HelloFresh as a result of COVID is a bigger headline grabber than we're focusing on improving our service. So again, sometimes <laughs> the media is responsible for what we do. We, we want to try to go after the headlines rather than actually do what's right by our customers. Pascal, I think it's time to talk tech. So let's talk tech. Every week, Pascal and I look for one or two apps or gadgets or pieces of software that have caught our attention that can help us with our marketing efforts or our productivity. Pascal, hit me with what you've got this week. So, Roger, I'm going through a bit of a Google phase, you know, after yeah. what I mentioned last week and so on. So I just want to complete that phase and almost get it out of my system. So have you come across Google Books? I have come across Google Books. Right. Now, you know that I'm a very, very big fan of curation and content citation. So I wanted to kind of uh, remind people about Google Books. Now, Google Books is a search service or you know, provided by Google where you can search embed and share books and quotes and passages to your audience. So this is how it works. You would select Google Books in the uh, search services. You can either Google it or use the drop-down menu options. You put a keyword. So I was lucky imagination. I put the keyword content marketing, sorry to say. And a series of books appear. Now, what you can do, the large majority of the books have been scanned by Google themselves. And you can literally, if you choose copy and paste the embed code and share the, the, the page or the chapter or whichever onto your blog, write an article about the book you've read or you know, use the page that you, you're kind of sharing as a hook for, for your article, but essentially adding a bit more interest to maybe your blogging activities. You can, of course, share the link directly on, on social media and so on and so forth. So it's just a fun way to bring a bit of life maybe to... Uh, I would say, uh, you know, your social media activities and your blogging activities. So go back to this one if you've not seen it before, because uh, you might be very surprised by the, a, the sheer number of books that have been scanned by Google, some of them very recent, some of them much, much older. 
but also how you can really specify a particular page or passage. There is a close, close cousin to Google Books called Google Talk to Books, Google Talk to Books. And this one is more about citations. So you can't do any form of embedding and it's necessarily you can do with Google Books. What you can do is find a sentence, maybe a paragraph that can help you maybe bring a presentation to life or you know, organize some quotes uh, type content for your social media. So again, what you can do on this one, hence why it's called Google Talk to Books, you can use your mobile phone and use voice to either mention a few words or mention a phrase that you maybe, maybe remember from something that you've read. And then a whole list of citations and paragraphs would be featured together with a link to, to the books for you. It's just a wonderful way to sometimes discover books that you wouldn't know uh, existed. But also, if you like to kind of you know, pepper your, your blogging, your articles, even your, your podcast videos with, with quotes from authoritative sources, then Google Talk to Books could be a wonderful way to get to that source of information very quickly. I like that. I like the last part about finding quotes because I, I do like to put quotes in my articles and to refer to things in my podcast, but sometimes doing the research is, is too much. And some, sometimes you just want to do it very, very quickly. And, and this sounds to me as if it's something that I need to have a look at. So, Pascal, thank you so much for that. No problem. I've got a slightly different slant this week. I'm looking... We talk about films, don't we, on this podcast a lot, and th th these these are really to help you with your entertainment. And the first one is an app called Just Watch. It's the Just Watch app, and a shout out to our colleague Richard Tubb for pointing this one out to us. Now, I don't know about you, Pascal, but sometimes I'll get like the other night. I said to said to my wife, "Oh, do you know what I fancy watching? I fancy watching The Usual Suspects." Now, it's a great film, but it's one that we've never bought on DVD, Blu-ray, or anything. So I thought, well, I wonder, is it on Netflix? Is it on Amazon Prime? Is it on iTunes? Is, is, it, on, is it on BBC iPlayer or anything like that? And it can be quite laborious, can't it? Just trolling through, trogging through Netflix, going through Amazon Prime, looking on all of the platforms. And, and, and sometimes it can take you a long time. And then when you do find it, you find out, oh, actually, it's not, it's not free. You've got to pay to either rent it at £5 an hour or buy it at £15.99 or whatever it is. This app, it's a genius, absolute genius. So I open up the app, type in the usual suspects, and within a split second, it tells me where the usual suspects is available on all the different platforms like Netflix, all the different BBC iPlayer, Channel 4 player, and all of that, anywhere in the world, and if it's free and how much it costs. And as truth, as luck would have it, or as luck would not have it, as it turned out, um, Usual Suspects isn't available free anywhere. So I ended up renting it off iTunes for three forty nine, But it was fine. We really, really enjoyed it. But when you know what you want to watch, but you don't know where it is, and you haven't got it on DVD or Blu-ray, Just App will tell you exactly where to find it, and it will save you so much time. But then, Pascal, there are some times when you just want something new, don't you? You just want something new. And one of the things I find quite frustrating about Netflix is even though the interface is 
beautiful in the way that it shows you the covers of the films and 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 the algorithm learns what you like and it will present you with a certain number of selections we do know that the number of films and tv programs on netflix there's hundreds of thousands of them and they're never going to present to you anything other than a very very small snapshot of what's available and i think that sometimes especially if you're geeks like you and i you sometimes miss some of the choice cuts now i came across this it's not even it's not even an app this is just a website and i've included the link to the website in the notes and the website is called ogrescrypt.com ogrescrypt now this is a this is a supreme work of utter geekery this guy has literally gone in and he's listed by category on and all this is a web page of thousands of links ca- categorized into into subta- subsections so for example there's a whole section on f- horror movies and within horror movies you've got b horror movies creature features cult horror movies deep sea horror movies foreign horror movies horror comedy you get the idea and Within each one, if you click on it, then you'll get a complete list of that series of films within the Netflix real estate. And I love this because just even clicking on one of those categories like creature horror movies, you suddenly get a load of movies that aren't presented to you by the Netflix app, but it's just a list of what's on Netflix full stop. And you can guarantee that you'll see something that catches your eye that you won't have got offered up by the algorithm. So Ogre's Crypt, if you're into Netflix and you want something to be a nice surprise, go and look at his work of astonishing geekery. It's fantastic. Do you know what's uh, brilliant, by the way? Thanks for that, because I definitely use, just because of the name, I'll have to check out the website and the first app just channel. But you and I obviously don't talk to each other. We don't share our, our kind of little ideas. We want to surprise each other. But we've both, once again, gone for very similar uh, apps and solutions in terms of curation and citation without even talking to each other. Which I think <laughs> yeah. is absolutely remarkable. But I think you also, uh, in both cases, you know, from what my choices and yours, we are uh, kind of looking into this uh, idea of abundance of information and content and now, you know, the solution has to be around getting to the content you need and want as fast as possible, with the least amount of inconvenience as possible. And I think you're right, you know, Netflix and Amazon Prime and all the others, they're now suffering from this abundance of content where sometime, you know, I would just because I, I have uh, the time and the, the aspiration, would search for things for a long time and discover some very good films that are just buried in there somewhere in, in their database. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Pascal, it is now time to fire up the flux capacitor (laughs) to set the time circuits for the past and to go back to this week in history. Here we go, Pascal. In 1951, big crowds attend the final ceremonies which mark the official end of the Festival of Britain, a celebration of British advances in science, technology and the arts. In 1955, Hollywood actor James Dean is killed when his sports car is involved in a head-on collision with another vehicle. In 1959, the Soviet space probe Lunar 2 crashes onto the surface of the moon, becoming the first man-made object to reach the moon as well as the first man-made object to reach any celestial body. 
1968, the American hippie musical Hair opens in <laughs> London, one day after the abolition of theatre censorship. In 1969, the Beatles released the Abbey Road album in the UK. Five million copies were sold by the end of the year, and it was also the last album they ever recorded. Oh, right. In 1985, the International Cometary Explorer passes through the gas of Comet P. Jacobini Zina, the first ever man-made object to pass through the tail of a comet. That's interesting. 1988, IBM announces shipment of the three millionth PS2 personal computer, not to be confused with the PlayStation 2, of course. <laughs> it introduced many standards in the PC market, including the VGA video display. Now, I didn't know this, Roger, just to complete our uh, This Week in History. In 1994, Hot Java, a browser making use of Java technology, is demonstrated at Sun Microsystems. The idea was to transfer Sun's new programming platform for use on the internet. Hot Java would have limited functionality compared to other browsers, but was continued until 2011. Wasn't Java that piece of code that just used to mess everything up? Um, I always used to remember That's not my memory, but uh, I know that it's been present and still is probably in so many online platforms for sure. And that's probably the reason it's, the code is still there in quite a lot of these things. But I, I just have this vague memory of, uh, of, of Java being responsible for crashing my computer loads of times. I think we, you... are, we are talking about quite a few years ago, the early days of computers. Completely. Here. I mean, how many times have I heard in my career, oh, I must be the JavaScript. That's why it's not yes. working. Yes. But um, your comment about the IBM computer, you know, personal computer, yeah. with uh, introducing the VGA video. Oh, I remember how excited we all got in, in the late 80s when you could have more than eight colors or 16 colors on yeah. your computer screen. VGA. I mean, literally, it's almost like, unless it's VGA, I'm not interested. Does, what does VGA stand for? So video graphics, something else? Um, uh, yeah. Okay. So a video, a VGA display, what what um, dimensions do you think that would have been? So it started to get to the, um, the, the, the bigger screen, but what was interesting at the time was the number of color choices. So right. you know, it was 8, 16, 32, and then it moved very quickly to 256. And that changed two things. Obviously, the... Um, how pleasant the interface was for computing, you know, for work and life, but also video games had to get very interesting then. Do you know, this, this, this is fascinating. This is fascinating that as marketeers, we've, we've said this before on the show, we get seduced by the latest toys, don't we, Pascal? You know, the new iPhone comes out or the new Android phone comes out and, and we're just itching to get our hands on it, even though actually incrementally and technologically it's not that much more advanced than the last one. And the truth is that you could probably do without buying the next generation. You can probably wait for at least the next one beyond that or even the next one beyond that. But it made me laugh yesterday. I was reading an article about the GoPro Hero 9. Right. And I'm sitting there thinking, I've only just bought the GoPro Hero 7. I didn't even know there'd been an eight. Um, so I, I immediately had that sort of FOMO and think, oh, I, I'm going to go and have a look at it. And of course, yes, it's got better stabilization. Um, it can record 5K video. And I'm sitting there thinking, what? Do we even need, do, do most people even use 4K? And now we've got a camera that takes 5K. But again, it just brings it home to me. You know, in the United Kingdom, the majority of people still watch DVDs on DVD players and DVDs aren't even 720p 
you know, beyond, up, above 720p, we've got 1080. Mm -hmm. Then we've got 4K. And here we've got the GoPro 9 shooting in 5K, yet the majority of people are still watching things almost in standard definition. So again, it's fabulous that all of this technology is pushing us forward and look how far we've come since that IBM computer. But, you know, do we always need to be jumping to the next level? Um, I know there's that sort of FOMO, we don't want to miss out, but sometimes I, I just think that everything now is almost on an annual renewal cycle, and, and it, it just genuinely doesn't need to be like that. No, you're right, but also for me, the, the, the slight concern is around, you know, back to movies again, my worry would be the movies would be left behind because mm. they're just simply not watchable. I mean, mm. even if you watch, for example, uh, you know, Freeview or Freesat, as we have in the UK, and there will be some programs from 10, 20 years ago, they are now so grainy, so soft, yeah. because, of course, you know, the TV that I've got, everything else, is not supporting an older, you know, kind of rendition of the image quality and so on. And now there's a bit of nostalgia with it, but equally, it's becoming very obvious when something is just not, you know, um, very good to look at. Can I just close very quickly because I'm very taken by this um, Festival of Britain, you know, 1951. Yes. Uh, there was two things going on there. There was A, uh, boosting the morale of the population after the Second World War, but also suggesting that when it comes to British science, technology, and the arts, um, the role that the United Kingdom could play as a leading light in the world. And I almost kind of wish we could do something like this again. There are many festivals, Roger, I, I give you that. You know, there are many events, but one which is really uh, literally like, you know, putting the whole nation around it. I think the, the closest I could think of would have been for the Olympic Games, you know, where the nation was behind it. Um, that was 2012, if memory serves, 1951. And I have this image because obviously um, I wasn't around. I'm sure you, you appreciate that. But I hope you don't mind, but I have this image of um, Captain America another Marvel yes. movie, when they go to their own version of uh, Festival of Sciences and, and so on and so forth. But that, that sense of celebration, uh, I think, must have been something quite exceptional back in 1951. Yeah, and I think that I think the Festival of Britain was Alexandra Palace, wasn't it? Ali Pali, I'm sure that that might have been the case. And I'm sure that uh, appeared in an episode of Doctor Who. But, but yeah... I think I think something like that to celebrate science, technology, and the arts—you know, not political, not not evil or anything like that—just celebration of something. Because let's face it, there's so much crap going on in the world at the moment. <laughs> it would be really nice to have something that actually just celebrated the good in the world. Mm. Talking about celebrating the good in the world, how about we do some creator shoutouts? <laughs> This is the section of the show where Pascal and I give a shout out to a creator. It could be a podcast they put together, it could be an article, it could be a LinkedIn article, it could be a Facebook post. But it's somebody probably from within our network or slightly outside of our network, somebody who's put something together that we think really stands out from a content point of view. So Pascal, you're in the driving seat. All right, thank you very much, Roger. So today, I would like to celebrate the work of Ian Farrar. Now, Ian Farrar is a consultant specializing in sales and marketing with a twist. Uh, I would encourage you to check his website. His company is called Far North, but he also has a podcast show called the Industry Business Angel, sorry, the Industry Angel Business Podcast, the other way around. And the reason why I wanted to talk to you about Ian is that um, 
you could argue he was a late entrant into the world of podcasting. I mean, a few years back, but you know, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily his first choice. But the way in which he embraced the medium and the way in which he's actually created his own style is something that really is an example for many others to follow. What I like about Ian and his approach to podcasting, there's always a sense of a celebration, a sense of event and experience that he does with his audience. Now, not only does he do obviously podcasting as you would expect using um, the digital, but he will, or has done until more, more recently, live with an audience. So he's also looking at the different ways of crafting, you know, obviously the audio content. So yes, he'll be using uh, Zoom calls such as this one. He's now become a regular user of live. Mm-hmm. So his production flow would be, he goes live, he promotes obviously the live session where we can ask questions and so on, and then he repurposed that, as you would imagine, into video content, podcast, and so on. He will do solo shows as well, as you would imagine. He's done things like 12-hour marathons, would you believe? So yes. he, he was live, uh, online, recording and interviewing guests for 12 hours to support his brand, but also to support charities. Um, as I mentioned to you, I want to do is he's done some live Q&A, so literally it would take his... Uh, in a mobile recording kit and some of his colleagues and do a conversation with a guest, but there'll be an audience in a room that can ask questions. That opened some interesting doors for him where he was also allowed to um, interview artists, uh, including uh, author, uh, authors of books and so on and so forth. He's also moved away from just business talks, if you like. And when it comes to his um, podcast and the podcast guest, he does things very, very differently. So he's fast approaching now episode number 200, which is quite an achievement, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. But if you look at the range of guests, it could be someone running a microbrewery all the way to a high-profile politician <laughs> or scientist. It's so, so varied that um, when I get the chance to speak to him again in the near future, I want to ask him, is there a, a method to this madness or just your madness? <laughs> but it kind of works for him. But again, what I want to celebrate f- for you, um, Roger, is that when it does it, there's a real sense of event and experience. And I think that's a great inspiration for others. Interesting that he's doing various different things because the established wisdom from the gurus is that you should focus on a particular niche all of the time. Um, And it's actually nice to see somebody who's getting successful by doing lots of different subjects at the same time. Yeah. So what about yourself, Roger? Who have you got today? Okay, this is this is a little bit different, Pascal, and, and I'll preface this by saying, you know, I constantly tell myself I shouldn't watch the news, I shouldn't read the news, <laughs> and I shouldn't get involved in political debates. But, you know, it's so hard, isn't it, in the 24-7 digital world we live in at the moment, and there's all this talk of a second wave of coronavirus, there's talk of more lockdowns and um, economic Armageddon, Brexit, wherever you look, it's just negative, 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 scare, scare, scare. And I came across um, one of my connections on LinkedIn, who actually is probably more from my financial services background than my uh, marketing uh, role. And she's a lady called Jan Ambrose. And she describes herself on her LinkedIn profile as helping women in financial services create calm, clarity and confidence with one-to-one coaching and hypnotherapy. Now, two things caught my attention here. First of all, the word hypnotherapy. Uh, my father used to do hypnotherapy. Um, he used to be he used to hypnotize my mother, which was fantastic, the way he used to be able to make her go to sleep. I'm sure he had that uh, 
little snap of the fingers and boom, <laughs> off she went. And I'm convinced I was scared of flying when I was young. And my father always denied it, but I think he put, tried to put the, the uh, hypnotherapy um, influence on me to try and ease me out of that fear. But Jan's just put together a very short video, and it is literally only about five and a half minutes long, if that, on LinkedIn, addressing what I've just said. Are you feeling anxious about all the stuff you're reading or seeing in the news at the moment? And, and basically saying you shouldn't be. And here's a few ideas as to how to sort of calm yourself down and, and, ju and just try to obliterate that stuff out of your mind. Don't let it worry you. And as you would expect from somebody who practices hypnotherapy, she's got an incredibly calming voice. And even though that video is only literally about five minutes long, that calmness in her voice and the way she presents herself, honestly, I watched it and it, it did have the exact effect that I've described. It, it really calmed me down and relaxed me. So even though it's only very short, and even though it's only one post on LinkedIn, I've included the, the link to it in the show notes, please go and listen to Jan Ambrose if you are at all feeling any form of anxiousness or, or stress about the world we live in at the moment. And just listen to that five-minute video. Seriously, it will work wonders. Smashing. Well done, Roger. Okay, Pascal, this is it. <laughs> Probably my favourite. Actually, each week, every section becomes my favourite. But at the moment, film marketing is up there. So should we move on to this week's film? It's the film marketing section. This is the part of the show where we talk about a film. It could be a more recent release, a modern release. It could be a film from 20 years ago, from 25 years ago. Something that we both enjoyed watching many, many times, but also something which gives us a lesson in how films were marketed, but also how we can use those lessons in our own marketing for our own businesses. Pascal, what shall we dissect this week? I'm going to say, Roger, that you've got a friend in me. Uh -huh. And I'm going to say that I know you've got troubles. I've got them too. <laughs> and just in case I wasn't clear enough, I'm going to say to you, to infinity and beyond. Today, Roger, we're yes. going to talk about Toy Story. Toy Story. 25 <laughs> years ago. How did that happen? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what is uh, the reason why we chose uh, Toy Story, just for our viewers and listeners, for, for many reasons. One, it is probably the perfect example of the combination of different talents from different walks of life and different kind of forms of science, uh, all the way to, you know, obviously acting, but also because it was the very first animation film done entirely, entirely using computing and yeah. computer power. I think that's very important. It was also done by a tiny small production company called Pixar. Pixar. And I know that now Pixar has become this kind of brand and name that uh, suggests, you know, a very large organization with a lot of power and might in the world of storytelling and film production. But back then, there were nobody and that wasn't an easy ride for them to pull off uh, Toy Story. Yeah, and it, it sticks in the mind. I mean, I went originally went to see Toy Story before I had children. Um but it's a film that I've watched with my son on many, many occasions. And it's one of those films, isn't it, Pascal, where they get the balance absolutely right in terms of it's entertainment for young children 
And yet it's also an adult film on many levels as well. There's those knowing winks to things that we grew up with <laughs> a long, long time ago, even even from the selection of the toys like Mr. Potato Head and the and all the army soldiers and, and that sort of thing. And and I think that when you can put together a piece of content that appeals to loads of generations at the same time. You know, you, you, we hear a lot in the marketing um, world at the moment of targeting millennials, targeting, targeting Generation Z, you know, Generation X, all of that sort of thing. And you've got to tailor your message. Here's a piece of content, a film that transcends generations. Uh, and no doubt, you know, it will appeal to the next generation to come because it operates on all those levels. And that is a remarkable achievement, in my opinion. I think so. And I think in terms of the story, Toy Story 25 years ago, I suspect we're going to have some form of celebration with the release of new DVDs and so on and so forth. But it's also that universal story of the tension between old and new. Mm. You know, so you had obviously Woody, but you also had Buzz Lightyear from Star yes. Command presenting you know, the future of toys. Potentially, you know, you could argue by extension the future of technology, the future of you know life at home and that kind of things. And you've got the, the, this constant tension, but also, it's strangely, we're all very human, and we are you know essentially exploring the flows of Woody wanted to obviously still be liked by all the other toys, but also importantly be liked by you know the boy who owned him and not being mm. superseded by obviously Buzz Lightyear and the threat of you know change. There was all stuff stuff going on. But I think where you know the movie worked really well is that actually because of the wonderful acting by all concerned, not just Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, they were incredibly likable characters, all yes. of them. Yes. But people don't know this. Disney got signed to the first script. Now Disney is the distributor uh, at the time of um, you know Pixar working on Toy Story. And Disney wanted a movie that was uh, had more edge. They wanted the conflict between you know Woody and um, Buzz Lightyear to be a bit more severe and dark and so on and so forth. And what is interesting is Pixar said no. Sorry, you may be Disney, and we may lose uh, the biggest distribution company in the world, but we believe in the story. And that's not what we're going to do now. It wasn't as simple as saying no once, Roger. You'll appreciate that. It was back and forth, back and forth. And the breakthrough came from essentially um, the co-owner of um, Pixar, no mm. other than Steve Jobs. Ah. And now um, Apple bought Pixar uh, in 1986. And I don't think we even knew that happened. And I'm guessing they must have bought them because they wanted to create, obviously, content for their platforms. Potentially, back then, you'll tell me, Roger, Steve Jobs had aspiration for an Apple TV of sort or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. But, and therefore, they wanted, to your point, their own media company or content production company. So Steve Jobs essentially became, became the intermediary between Pixar and, and Disney. The and I think now that the the kind of tension between the two companies has been well documented. But it wasn't known at the time, but they believed in the story so much and they believed in the characterization so much that they were prepared to walk away and find a different way of distributing. That's very interesting. And uh, the the one one of the things that always stays in my head about Toy Story is that the one of the characters that's, I I'll, pr I'll probably describe this a little bit wrong, but it was almost like a a, a baby's head or a doll's head <laughs> stuck on top of a crab or a, or a robot mm. crab or something. And it was genuinely quite disturbing. 
but also quite sad in a way as well. You know, it, it, it was it was made to look as if it was evil. And it also had that creepy music and the the clicking of the of the claws or the tentacles or the, the or or the feet or whatever it was, but it was it was almost quite sad as well, as if the individual parts of it had been sort of mutated and pushed together by by a child, and and again it was just maybe that was a little bit of the edginess that they allowed to go into the mm. into the story, but I mean just think about again how embedded within our culture this film and its sequels obviously has become you know the 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 toys video games theme parks spin-offs all that merchandise from a film which was the first film as you say made by animated by computers and i think even for me now it's hard to remember 1995 in terms of you know what was possible in and around computers but it would have been the very, very early days of you and I doing anything meaningful, I would say, with with computers. So not only my memory of, of the story and, and the voice acting and so on is great, but I'd imagine that I would have been blown away by the quality of what had been created and crafted by using computers. And again, the marketing around the film, I mean, they made a big thing out of the fact that it was computer animation, but they did play into the nostalgia. The aforementioned Mr. But there was a toy in there that every child or every adult who went to see it when they were a child will have played with one of those toys, whether it was the crocodile or Mr. Potato Head or or the equivalent of Woody or the doll. And there was that nostalgia. I mean, I think that I think that Toy Story is the only film, cartoon film that I've been to see as an adult without a child in my life. <laughs> Obviously, when I was a child, I went to see cartoons. And when I was a father with a child, I went to see cartoons. But I'm sure that it's the nostalgia in the marketing for Toy Story that made me go to see that film as an adult with no child in tow. Which is interesting because uh, it's back to this disconnect sometimes people can have with their content of the audience. And I, I am absolutely convinced. If you think about who was behind, obviously, the creation of um, of uh, Toy Story, there were you know adults that were looking back at their own youth. You know, but you had writers like Josh Whedon uh, behind mm. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You had Andrew Stanton, John, Joel Cohen. I mean, names that now are, are become part of the, the Hollywood Premier League, really. Um, I mean, we must you know, spend a moment to talk about the music and the, the singing from Randy Newman. <laughs> but, course. you know, the one thing that had me, I remember bursting into laughter out loud because I recognized myself in this, is when Woody is obviously planning um, something, probably how to um, go, go back home or whatever, and he uses the Heska sketcher to, to actually plan it. And suddenly right. the, the map of what, whatever he has to do can come through. And there was all these little moments where, as adults, we were burst into laughter. And, of course, a young child would look at you strangely thinking, why are you laughing? There's, there's nothing funny there. But you know, I realized the hours I spent trying to do something, anything, looking anything remotely interesting on the Hesse Sketcher. And back to, to the marketing. So in, interestingly, the, um, the this film didn't really plan that far ahead, which you know mm. suggests again that, that there's some sense of humility, but not sure, sure what they had because of the constant back and forth with uh, different forces out there, not just Disney. So actually, the mer- merchandise came came on much much later, and sometimes was prompted by other parties. So what I'm meant to say to you, Roger, is sometimes you know others will see value what you do sooner than you do yourself. And again, just listen. So in the case 
case of um, Pixar and Toy Story, it was the likes of you know McDonald's and the likes of toy companies and so on saying, you've not thought of doing um, you know kind of toys version of the characters and Pixar yes. like no, just too busy making a film. Yeah. Uh, you've not thought of making sure that there is a zone in Disneyland just for Toy Story. Uh, no, just too busy making a film. So I think that sometimes this partnership will, will come much, much later. And it may well be that it was just the right thing for the creators to focus on creation and sometime for the marketing and everything else that comes to, to be to come later and, and not be burdened by having to think too many things at the same time. Now that's very, very interesting, isn't it? And it's probably the thing that we can end on. But when you're putting content together, you probably should focus on the content, the message in the content itself, rather than thinking about how it's going to be repurposed. Because I think that it had Pixar gone into this thinking, we're making a film so that we can sell loads and loads of Buzz Lightyear dolls and loads and loads of Woody dolls and loads and loads of Mr. Potato Heads, they may not have come out with as good a film as they did because they focused on the story, they focused on the acting, they focused on the music, and they focused on the nostalgia. And all of that um, repurposing, I guess you could call it, came later. So focus on what you need to get done first, and the other things will slot into place, I think. Absolutely. So just to close, I would like um, you, Roger, and our viewers and listeners to start to hum in, in your head the, um, <laughs> you know, you've got a friend in me song from Randy Newman. Um, because <laughs> to this day, if I hear it, I just get almost a tear in my eye. I have to say, toy, to, the Toy Story films, and I think it was called Up, wasn't it? Was the, the Correct. Pixar film with the, with the little old man in it. Ooh, Those was... are perhaps perhaps the only cartoons in history that have made me cry. <laughs> I, I'm lying. Dumbo made me cry when I was a, when I was a child. But as an adult, the to Toy Story and Up are the only films that have made me cry. My goodness, Pascal, we've done another episode, and as always, the nostalgia that just flows out of the screen when we start <laughs> talking about films is amazing. So I'm going to draw this to a close. Everybody, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening to Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. Listen, please subscribe. Leave us some comments and suggestions in all the places where you consume your podcasts or where you consume your videos. And until next time, go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fantonia. And we both say, see you next time.